Today's episode of Accounting for Us is part two of the series, Two Truths and a Lie, The Coronavirus and Black People, with Dr. Aisha Terry. COVID testing. Um, I understand there's two major types of testing today. Um, educate my audience around COVID testing. First of all, let me say testing is very, very important. Um, I personally uh, wish that I could test everyone I see. Um, the reason is we know for a fact that individuals have COVID-19 and have no symptoms have no fever, have no cough, have no shortness of breath, they feel fine. But we also know that in up to 40% of transmitted cases, it is done by individuals who are asymptomatic or have no symptoms. So if we had more testing, we could diagnose people who really are not concerned at all about having COVID, but at the same time are potentially spreading it um, and then prevent you know, the worsening of this pandemic. So I think that first of all, testing should be plentiful. Um, I think that given that it's now mid almost August and we've been dealing with this pandemic for several months, um, there really should never be a lack of testing in at health, healthcare facilities, certainly uh, for anyone. And that's not the case still in many cities throughout the country, there are a lack of tests. Um, and the other thing is, uh, uh, all tests aren't created equal, so we need tests that are reliable in terms of their result, right? Um, you know, you take a pregnancy test, and they're like, oh, this pregnancy test is 99% accurate. Well, we need a test for COVID that's 99% accurate, and the reality is that all tests aren't that good, and so we need to not only have increased production of quantity of tests, but I'll also increase quantity of quality tests that are reliable and accurate. And certainly the accuracy of the tests have improved over the months, um, but there's still some work to be done there. Um, there's still false positives and false negatives, wherein the test result may say that someone does not have COVID, but they actually do. That happens from time to time. And so we need to work on that. Generally speaking, right now, there are two, I guess, major categories of tests. That is antigen and antibody tests. So the antigen test is testing for the presence of a protein that is on the virus COVID-19. It's literally testing to see if COVID-19 protein is in your nose or in the back of your throat. And so for these tests, you're being swabbed in your nose um, <laughs> it's so interesting because patients, I hear them all the time say, I don't want you to put that swab into my brain. And I'm like, I promise you, I'm not putting it into your brain. Um, that would be bad, very bad. Um, so, but, it, but it's certainly not as comfortable as it, I've actually been tested. It's not comfortable. Um, but that's the antigen test. And that's testing for the actual protein of the virus. Um, and the antigen tests overall aren't quite as reliable as the other type of tests, which are for antibodies. 
And so the antibody test is checking for the presence of these proteins that the body creates in response to seeing the virus. So it's not testing for the actual protein of the virus itself, but rather, if you will, um, what results from the virus being in our bodies, which is our immune system creating antibodies to, against the virus. Um, and so antibody tests, uh, some of those are from swabs, but there are several that are based on blood testing. Um, and again, those tests tends to be a little bit more reliable. Um, and then with the antibody test also, just one more nuance, it can tell us with a little bit more specificity whether or not the infection is current, like right now you're infected, or if it's from having been infected uh, several weeks prior and you may have actually gotten over um, the infection. And so there are two different types of antibodies, IgM and IgG, uh, that can be tested in that regard. So if I had a preference, which test would you recommend an individual to take? And I have a feeling you may say it depends, but... Um... <laughs> um, you know, the reality is that the antibody tests are not as uh, available compared to the antigen tests. And so, you know, you may not have a whole lot of choice. You may have to take the antigen tests. Um, I, I think that the generally, you know, the antibody test, again, tends to overall at this juncture be a bit more reliable and it gives you a bit more information in terms of whether you were infected in the past or currently or both. Um, and so I guess if I had my rethers, I would go with the antibody test. But what you have to be very careful about is to specify to make sure they're checking for both IgM and IgG. Uh, IgM being that you're currently infected and IgG being that you were infected in the past. And so some of these antibody tests are only checking for IgG if you were, you know, infected in the past. Um, but, you know, it, so it depends on kind of what information you want um, at that juncture. Well, Dr. Terry, if I want to ensure or if I want a test to provide me the most comfort, and it sounds like I need to be very specific around what is what I'm being tested for. Is that something that you would communicate to the lab or to your physician when you're requesting the test? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So a physician has to order the test for the most part. There, there are actually ways now to, to kind of get your own COVID test without having a physician order it, but... Um, like, for example, through CVS. Um, be aware, though, that if a physician doesn't order it, my understanding is that your insurance may not cover it. But nonetheless, generally speaking, uh, a physician orders the test. And so if there's a particular test that you would prefer, uh, you should have that discussion with your doctor to see what makes sense and so that it can be ordered appropriately. And, um, you know, it actually brings up another really good point. I hear People say all the time, like, I just had blood tests done last week. Why do I need more blood tests done? Well, blood tests, tests, et cetera, aren't all created equal. There are hundreds and thousands of different types of tests. So to just have blood work doesn't necessarily mean that the test that I'm interested in was checked. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's kind of a health literacy thing. 
Um, but yeah, I think having that discussion with your doc around what makes the most sense as far as the COVID test that, that would serve you best um, makes sense. What does a negative test result give me as far as comfort? Um, and the reason I ask is I know in the sports world, NBA players are playing within the bubble. Um, they're frequently testing the players um, before they got to the bubble. And my understanding is, um, I'm assuming there's consistent testing going on within the bubble. And I've heard stories to where originally some individuals may have tested positive and then retested it and then tested negative. And maybe that goes to your earlier point as far as false negatives, false positives, et cetera. Um, but let's say I take a test today and I test negative. What comfort should I take in that? And based off of that comfort, what activities or behaviors would you recommend I participate in with my negative COVID tests? So it all depends on how good of a sample was obtained in terms of how reliable the result is. So for example, if I'm getting a nasal swab or a throat swab, but I don't go far enough up to get to the protein of the virus or don't swab it long enough. I mean, our nurses are trained to literally swab. I think they have to count to 15, like that's a long time. Um, but if it's not done, you know, adequately in terms of making sure that the sample is adequate, then guess what? The test result won't be adequate. And so um, if you're gonna have the test done, go ahead, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and, and just let them get a good sample because that's gonna determine how reliable the test result is, all right? So if you don't get a good sample, you may get a false negative. It may be negative, it says it's negative, but maybe you just didn't get far enough in there to get what you needed. Um, that's why the blood tests are a bit more reliable, right? Because it's your blood. It's not based on you know human ability to get you know an adequate sample. Um, but it also depends on, again, the test itself and how sensitive and specific it is. And what that means is how accurate is it? And that information is available by the lab. You can always ask the lab, you know, what is the sensitivity and specificity of this test? Meaning how accurate is it? And it's a number. So for example, if a test is, you know, 70% um, sensitive, that means 70% of the time it's going to accurately say, you know, that the test is positive. 70% of the time it's going to be right in terms of diagnosing you as positive. But 30% of the time it's going to be wrong. So, I mean, you have to just take that information and then determine how comfortable you are with the result. So 70% is probably, is that as good as it gets at this point when it comes to testing? I think a lot of tests are, are got, have gotten a lot better than 70%. I do know that probably three, four months ago, most tests were no better than 70%. 70% is not awesome, really. Um, a good test, like I said, the pregnancy test. <laughs> most tests, uh, you want them to be, I mean, ideally in the 90s, ideally. And I, I think that there are some... Um, COVID-19 tests that have certainly gotten a lot better in terms of accuracy. So higher than the 70s. COVID in the new norm, Dr. Terry, with cases being rampant within the African-American community, 
I would like to think some of that is due to behavior. I would like to think some of that is due to choices and decisions that individuals are making as it relates to their attitude around social distancing or their willingness to um, engage or interact with um, individuals. Um, For example, the protest that we had um, several weeks ago, social distancing isn't something that you can necessarily enforce when you're in a protest. And I know there were individuals that had masks on, um, but in my mind, the optics of a scenario like that to me did not seem ideal if you were trying to minimize the likelihood of contracting COVID-19. Um, can you kind of talk about behaviors or things that you feel like may be reasonably safe for an individual to participate in, being at the summertime, being that we do want to social distance and we do want to take precautions, but we also do want to live life. We also want to engage with loved ones. Um, so in my mind, I think you have to balance these things out with your risk tolerance. So can you kind of help the audience um, ideas, scenarios, or situations that might be feasible and relatively safe? Yeah, so I mean, you hit it on the head. Everyone has their own level of risk tolerance. And I think that each individual adult, obviously, um, has to decide the level of risk that they're willing to take. The thing about COVID-19, however, is that your decision around risk that you're willing to take on for your life could affect others' lives, right? Because we're talking about a disease that is communicable, meaning it can be spread to others. And so just because you're comfortable with taking a lot of risk, let's say, for example, and potentially, you know, getting the infection and feeling like you're going to be okay with it, um, in those first two days before you develop the symptoms, if you then transmit it to someone else who perhaps can't manage the disease as well as you may be able to, um, that's a problem. And so that's why this is truly a public health emergency, meaning that um, all of the public is, inf- is, is impacted and our actions, our individual actions actually impact others. And so never before have we been more of our brother's keeper, really, in terms of our decisions and the choices that we make and how we live our lives. Um, I think that generally speaking, if you are outside, certainly by yourself, um, you're going to have a lower risk of contracting COVID-19. Um, and if you choose to do activities, I think to do them outside, ideally, uh, with few people around, um, makes the most sense. The other thing to remember in terms of wearing masks is that wearing a regular surgical mask or even a cloth mask serves the purpose of protecting others from you. Okay. And I know that's, that may be a little bit hard to kind of digest, but wearing the mask is not necessarily protecting yourself from contracting the virus. It's more to protect others from your droplets should you cough or sneeze or blow your nose. And so to that end, that's why it's important to not only just wear a mask, but to still distance yourself 
um, by at least six feet from others. An N95 mask does a much better job of actually protecting you from actually inhaling droplets from others. But if everybody wears a mask, then we're good, right? Because if everyone is wearing a mask, then you don't have to worry about anybody's droplets circulating in the air and potentially infecting others. Um, and so I, say, I think that generally speaking, outdoor activities with just a few people wearing, you're still wearing um, a mask and, and, and distancing yourself um, from those individuals that you might be around uh, are okay. Uh, generally speaking, open spaces are going to be better than small ones. And so, again, it, it's better to go shopping in a grocery store, obviously with a mask on and with social distancing, than it would be to go shopping in a smaller convenience store, right? And so as much space as you can have to separate yourself from others, the better. I think I heard there's levels to the mask. Uh, N95 being the one that will protect others as well as yourself. Um, and then is it fair to say surgical and then cloth masks or notch below? Yeah, I mean, I, it's just a different purpose. The surgical or cloth masks are really to protect others from your droplets to make sure that you're not dispersing COVID all over the place through your mouth and your nose. Um, which to that point is why it's important to wear the mask properly, not just over your mouth, but over your nose, um, because we know that droplets can come out of both orifices. Um, and so, yeah, it, they, they're different purposes. Um, but, but the thing about it is that N95s cost more. N95s are in shorter supply than surgical masks. And N95s really need to be reserved for healthcare workers who are truly on the front lines and, and, and truly need to you know, be protected from contracting it for the most part. And so that's why the advice from the CDC is for everyone to wear at the very least, you know, at the very least a cloth mask. Um, and that if everyone does that effectively and consistently, then that, that serves the purpose well. Which stats do I care about? Is it the hospitalization rates? Is it death rates? Is it cases? You know, there's a lot of stuff thrown out in the media. Um, when this all started, my understanding is the effort to flatten the curve was to ensure that hospitals were not overrun and that, you know, managing that capacity is what drove shut-in. And I don't know if hospitalization rates is talked about as much as it was two or three months ago, but can you help the audience decipher which that's are the important ones to focus on when it comes to COVID and managing it and flattening the curve? I mean, I personally think that it's important to focus on all the stats <laughs> because we still don't know enough about it. But the fact is, we still don't know what the after effects of having the virus will be. We still don't know if there will be long-term sequelae or effects such as shortness of breath chronically after having COVID-19 or such as neurologic conditions chronically, like long-term, even after you're, you've recovered from the infection. And so, you know, the idea of, well, I'll just catch it and get over it. So I have antibodies, you know, around it and I'll be good. Isn't 
necessarily the right approach to take, I don't think, especially from the context of the fact that we still don't know really what the long-term effects of having the infection might be. And so I think that infection rate is important in terms of percentage of people who actually contract it. Certainly death rate is important um, in terms of understanding who is more susceptible to succumbing to the virus if they are infected so that we can put policy and plans in place to make sure that that population is particularly protected. Um, And I think hospitalization rate is also important because it speaks to how severe the infection is, right? And so if you're sick enough to need to be hospitalized, um, that tells me that perhaps there is a more virulent or um, severe form of the virus uh, in a particular area, for example. So, you know, from an epidemiology and research standpoint, it's important really to understand all of those statistics um, in order to better plan policy initiatives around stopping it. You reserve the rights to not answer this question if you do not like to be. However, what are your thoughts about schools? Um, Should we reopen? Should we not reopen? Should we take a hybrid approach? I know it's a very controversial topic across the country. I know you have school systems sort of formulating their plans and approaches to this matter. And literally, depending on which school system you're a part of, you know, you may have a very different plan than a neighboring school system. Um, So what are your thoughts as far as um, kids and COVID and going back to school? You know, as I mentioned before, I think part of the most fascinating aspect of this disease is the fact that it is spread so easily and it is spread through people with no symptoms. And I believe that children have it. (laughs) They're always the vectors of spread of disease and infection kids. That's what they do. And so um, I think with COVID-19, for sure, um, they're major vectors for spreading it. And once the schools, if if, if the schools were to reopen, um, I mean, I can certainly, I would, I would predict a definite uptick in cases, um, just based on the fact that uh, of how what we know so far about how the thing is spread, um, you know, it's tough because everyone's home situation is different, and you know, one size fits all just doesn't work. There are some households wherein they are able to keep their kids at home, um, and that's really not a problem in terms of um, virtual learning for the whole year. And there are other households where that's just not an option uh, due to circumstances with the parents and and them perhaps needing to go and work and not being able to um, keep the children at home. Uh, We also know that there's a variety of of situations in homes in terms of risk factors for COVID-19. And so for households, for example, wherein someone is elderly or someone is immunocompromised, that household may be very hesitant to send their children back to school for fear of, you know, something coming back into that household that could result in something really detrimental. Um, So it's really not one size fits all. 
I think that in a lot of instances, individuals are being given an option around, you know, 100% virtual versus some type of hybrid model, virtual and some in-person. Um, and to me, that makes sense to some degree, because again, at least it takes into account the fact that every household's needs are different. Um, um, so, you know, I think that that's generally what we're going to see. And I think more than anything, it's important to be able to adjust. And so if schools reopen um, and there's an increased rate seen, I think that there needs to be a shift made immediately um, to prevent further spread. Um, and I also think that, you know, this, this whole pandemic has really created an opportunity to embrace technology uh, to get better at um, virtual teaching and virtual learning um, and online platforms that engage learners and, and, and help with um, teaching and the like. And so in many ways, you know, this whole year is kind of an experiment. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, I think that it's, it's in many ways, uh, it's an opportunity to expand our ability to educate our children virtually, uh, which really is um, the future anyway. Um, I think that embracing technology uh, has been hastened a bit by the pandemic, um, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing at all. Yeah, I do agree that this year I think has shown many people that technology can be embraced and there is an alternative to the way we have historically done things. I know there's a lot of organizations who are now comfortable with working remotely that wasn't six months ago. Um, there are a lot of, I think a lot of what we used to do, we're now learning, you know, can be adaptable. Um, we can make those changes, maybe even if it's for the short term, right? But it's still the fact that, you know, we're able to move forward um, whereas six months ago, you know, there was individuals or there was organizations who not necessarily think that was possible. Um, so to wrap up, I want to go into my last topic, um, more about social justice. Social justice has really been um, a hot topic the last couple of months. Um, can you talk about, and you've alluded to it earlier, sort of the discrimination versus perceived discrimination within the healthcare system. I know that as an African-American male, I've been led to believe from my experiences, from what I've read, from what I've heard from my peers. And there's cases, right? Uh, I think Lee Williams actually alluded to, you know, being an advocate for her own health. And I guess that's a great story to where an individual who knows their body better than anyone else, right? Advocated for her health, which probably saved her life. You know, I, I guess you can make that argument. Um, so I, I'll start with this. Discrimination is present within the health system. Is that a fair statement? Um, can you help me differentiate between where there is obvious discrimination versus perceived discrimination? Because I don't think it's, it's a simple black or white thing, right? I, I think I've experienced more from an age perspective, right? Um, being younger, you know, being told that you're young, 
Therefore, there's a correlation with you being healthy without really having an explanation of why that is the conclusion um, is one instance that I can share that, you know, I find that amazing to this day that I've sat with doctors, I've talked with doctors, I've had annual examinations with doctors, and they color the narrative by the fact that I'm young. And I understand there's probably some medical backing for that, that you're probably less likely at risk for things based off of age. Um, but I've heard others that have had similar stories to then wake up two years, three years, five years later with something that potentially could have been caught or maybe was just flat out missed. Um, and it was almost around that same theme of, you know, if you're young, then more than likely than not, you probably don't have X, Y, Z disease or whatnot. Um, so I, I just lay that out there as a narrative, but talk to me about discrimination versus perceived discrimination. Right. Well, without a doubt, discrimination exists uh, throughout the land. And certainly healthcare is not immune to that discrimination. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King once said that, you know, injustice in health and healthcare is particularly concerning because we're talking about people's lives. And so I think there is a higher bar when it comes to healthcare and relative to the discrimination that we know exists and a higher um, need to address it and stamp it out. Because again, we're talking about individuals' lives, um, which obviously is paramount. You know, I would, I would argue that in many ways, the discussions around health equity and discrimination, particularly within healthcare began years ago. Um, and maybe from the mouths of babes. Um, back in December of 2014, a, a group of medical students from California actually spearheaded a nationwide monumental demonstration that they called White Coats for Black Lives. And this was actually the largest widely organized medical school protest since back during the Vietnam era. And it actually ended up being featured in um, perhaps one of the most prominent medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. Um, and in that article, these medical students described the importance of beginning a conversation at least about the role of healthcare and health providers in addressing explicit and implicit discrimination and racism in our communities um, and to reflect on the systematic biases that are really embedded uh, in medical education, in the curriculum, in learning environments, and even in administrative arenas within healthcare. And so this discussion, of course, has come full circle this year in 2020 with so much um, attention really being focused on structural racism and, and social justice, uh, police reform, and the like. Um, and so I think that whether it's perceived uh, or whether it's real, the fact of the matter is that perception often becomes reality. And we know that there is very clear data uh, in terms of outcomes. So, you know, frankly, whether it's perceived or whether it's real, it affects outcomes. And that is what we are focused on. We're focused on creating good outcomes for patients. And so it needs to be addressed. 
Um, you know, I, I think that one way that we can do a better job of getting at the discrimination that is in many ways, again, embedded and, and structural within healthcare and how the systems are, is to one, recognize it, um, to make sure that we are having conversations about structural discrimination and racism, um, to make sure that it becomes a priority for organizations, healthcare organizations in particular, uh, in terms of investing the dollars needed to do work around eradicating um, these issues. Um, I think it's important to, for organizations to have equity reports regularly where they specifically address how well they're doing in terms of equity, make, which, which, which speaks to having, making sure that outcomes for patients are similar across the board, uh, regardless uh, of differences. Um, I think it's also important for organizations to give their staff and employees um, permission to talk about these things, um, giving them permission to talk about racism and discrimination um, and, and how it affects their work and how it affects their patients is, is really important because it empowers people um, and it makes individuals feel supported in sharing their personal experiences. And I think that that trickles down to the care that we provide to patients and, and hopefully in a very effective way. Um, and, I, and I also think that it's important to recognize the social determinants of health uh, when we're taking care of patients. Um, so the social determinants of health really speak to these factors in our environment uh, that we know have a greater impact on health outcomes than anything that I can do and say clinically at the bedside in the emergency department or in the clinic. Um, and so social determinants of health, again, speak to things like where you live, where you grow up, where you learn, where you go to school, where you um, are born. It speaks to your access to health care. It speaks to the safety in your community. It speaks to law enforcement in your community. It speaks to food security and access to good foods in your community. Um, it speaks to education and your access to education. And we know that studies have shown uh, that the fact of the matter is that the proportional contribution to premature death has little to do with what we do clinically at the bedside. And that might be shocking to some, but the fact is that only about 10% of health care contributes to preventing premature death. Other things like behavioral patterns, genetic predisposition, and social circumstances play a much substantial role, much more substantial role. So, you know, if we're really in the business of saving lives, we have to acknowledge the role of these other factors and work to address them to ensure that there's a level playing field for all patients and that discrimination, discrimination doesn't persist. <laughs> The determinant factor if I live or die is with me. <laughs> it's my it's my takeaway. Well, it's it's with you, it's with your community, it's uh it's with your environment. It's it's is tied very much to your zip code and, and to where you were born and, and that environment that you were born in and what you have access to, for sure. So, you know, I think in healthcare we have to recognize that and realize that, that those aspects have to be addressed just like we're addressing prescribing medication for hypertension um, and, you know, doing well visits for children.
Um, you know, it's, it's like it, it has to be a part of the conversation. And in my opinion, you know, a big part of the conversation. I want to move on to hospitalization and the role that the emergency department plays into hospitalization. I correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that, you know, when individuals come to the emergency room, that the emergency room doc plays a role into determining if that individual is actually hospitalized. Is that a, is that fact or is it not? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, is it also fact that white patients are hospitalized more than black patients? Yeah. Um, Roughly. That's a tough one. I'm not sure about that. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's hard to say overall. I mean, I can say nationally um, there are higher rates of underlying comorbidities and diseases and conditions, chronic conditions amongst people of color than whites, but the rate in which they're hospitalized uh, there are so many factors that go into deciding that. Let me ask a question. The social economic characteristics, age, sex, race, insurance, meaning Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera, would you say that those are factors in determining if an individual is hospitalized or not? And not so much about Black versus white. Sure. What I can tell you is that in emergency medicine, it is not a factor at all. Um, so the thing about emergency medicine is that I consider it to be the great equalizer in many ways, meaning that I take care of homeless people who are literally right next to perhaps senators, um, from, you know, uh, in our federal government. And so, um, you do, um, treat patients, um, I would say largely access to insurance or not. Because, you know, our compensation is in no way tied to whether or not patients have insurance or not. And so, generally speaking, the decision to admit or to discharge a patient is wholly dependent on whether or not they need to be admitted to the hospital or not. Um, You know, it's interesting because I've certainly had patients uh, try to give me their insurance card when I go in to see them. and And I try to explain that I have zero interest in, in your, your insurance card. It, it, it literally has no bearing whatsoever um, on, you know, whether I decide to admit you or not and, and, and how I treat you. And, you know, the fact is there's, there's no, one, that's just the right thing to do. Uh, but two, there's zero connection between how we're compensated and, and whether someone has insurance or not. Now, there are some specialists who, um, who it's tied more uh, an individual's insurance level to, to their, their, their compensation. And, and that compensation, of course, then goes to maintaining their practice, keeping their lights on and stuff like that. Um, but for the emergency physician, I'm actually really grateful that I don't even have to think about it. So you mentioned those factors do not contribute to who is or who is not admitted. Um, Please share what sort of that thought process is. And I know that it's on a case-by-case basis, but generally speaking. 
Yeah, so it just depends on how sick someone is, whether or not they need hospitalization, whether or not they need, for example, oxygen to make sure that they're breathing adequately. If you need oxygen, it's in the hospital. It's not at home, so you need to stay in the hospital for that. Whether or not they need, you know, medication given through an IV, for example, which you couldn't get at home. Like if you need um, antibiotics through an IV, then you likely need to stay in the hospital for that. If you need um, fluids or IV fluids through an IV because you're not able to keep food down, you can't hydrate yourself. And so, you know, you need me to hydrate you, then that needs to take place um, in the hospital. And if, if you need, you know, constant nursing care, for example, to to take care of you, then that needs to happen in the hospital and, and you can't have that at home. And so those are some of the factors that, that go into it. We also pay, you know, pretty close attention to vital signs. Vital signs are vital. They are really important. And so when there are abnormalities with the vital signs, you know, you're more likely to be admitted to the hospital um, to sort that out and figure out why there is that abnormality and to address it. All right. So we've talked a lot. Any closing remarks? Well, again, I really, truly appreciate the opportunity um, to share, and uh, I really do hope that something that I've imparted has been really helpful um, in terms of um, educating and empowering and encouraging um, your audience. You know, I think that now more than ever, uh, given where we find ourselves in 2020, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of, you know, social unrest that we haven't seen in years, there's a huge opportunity. Um, And I think that part of those being engaged, advocating for ourselves, and also advocating for those who otherwise cannot advocate for themselves, advocating for underserved populations, and making sure that all voices are heard um, so that we ultimately can create the system um, that we all deserve in terms of making sure that we're able to live healthy lives, have access to health care, um, and, and even to impart that to future generations. Um, and so I think that this is a monumental time, and I just encourage everyone to engage in it in your own way. You know, we're going to participate in this movement around Um, the pandemic, this movement around social justice, this movement around anti-racism in various ways, you know, and um, I think it's important, though, that we do each individually engage in some way, um, and so that we can look back and say that, in the words of Nelson Mandela, um, our choices reflect our hopes and not our fears. And so with that, again, thank you so much for the opportunity. Dr. Terry, we thank you for your time, and we'll have to do this again.